Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. If you can hear me out in the hallways, I want to invite you to come join us as we begin our class. And Bryce, I think our, our clock up there, the time got changed, so I have no time what, it actu- what, what a- time it actually is. So maybe you can swap that for me. Otherwise, it might be a while because we have a lot of content to get through today. So thank you, Bryce. Let's pray, and uh, we're going to jump into continuing our study on soteriology this morning. Father, thank you for these people whom you have called to yourself. Thank you for your word that reveals to us uh, what is true. It tells us about our need for salvation, and it tells us about your grace and the incredible things that you have done um, to demonstrate your love for sinners and to bring us into a saving relationship with yourself. Lord, my desire this morning is that you would get glory, that you would be seen as a wonderful and merciful Savior, and that your work of grace towards us would be better understood, uh, resulting in love and worship and adoration. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so today's um, part five in our study through soteriology. Soteriology is simply the doctrine of salvation. It's the study of what the Bible says God has done to save sinners. And we've been working through this little acronym called uh, TULIP. We've been zooming out to sort of um, evaluate how salvation is brought about, what it means to be saved, and how God brings salvation to sinners. So the T in TULIP stands for total depravity. That refers to our fallen condition. That's our need for salvation. It means that all of us are sinners, and we are all the way sinful. Uh, Unconditional election, which would be the U in TULIP, refers to God's plan for salvation. That's the sovereign choosing of God before eternity that is unconditional. It's not based on anything in us or based on something we would do or wouldn't do. It is simply according to his grace and his loving kindness towards us. And that is God's plan for salvation, determining what will happen. But then the question arises, well, how is salvation accomplished? What actually brings salvation about? And we know that the answer is that it requires the sending of Jesus to die on the cross. Salvation requires atonement, his atoning sacrifice. So today we'll be looking at uh, the L in the traditional acronym of TULIP, which refers to a limited atonement. And this is the accomplishing of salvation. Now, atonement is a biblical theme, and it's not something that we only see um, in one or two places in Scripture. We see this in the Garden of Eden, don't we? When Adam and Eve sin, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, which doesn't work. And God graciously provides for them by killing an animal and clothing them with the skins of that animal. And this is the first hint of atonement that we see in Scripture. We see it with the story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his only son. He takes Isaac up on the mountain, the same place that would later be the site of Israel's temple. And right before the knife is about to fall, an angel stops Abraham, and Abraham notices a a ram that is caught in the thicket. And we see there the fulfillment of the question that Isaac had earlier asked his father. He said, Father, here's the wood, here's the fire, where's the, the sacrifice? And Abraham had said somewhat cryptically, God will provide himself a sacrifice for the offering. And God did, and that was symbolic, showing that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. 
that God was going to provide a substitute. We see this idea of atonement in the Passover. We just recently covered this in the book of Exodus, where where the firstborn is doomed for judgment, but God tells the Israelites they can slaughter a lamb, paint the doorposts, and the angel will pass over those houses, that a life has already been been given in that home. And so the death of the firstborn was escaped through atonement. We see it as we've been talking about in our Sunday morning sermons in the tabernacle, that sacrifice and atonement for sin featured prominently in Israel's worship. And annually they had Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where atonement was made for the sins of the nation. And then we arrive at the work of Jesus and find that the final atonement is offered through him. So atonement is something that runs all the way through scripture. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God can elect sinners for salvation. He can choose an eternity past to save. But in order to accomplish that salvation, in order to bring it about and fulfill that plan, atonement has to be made. So in our study of how God brings about salvation, we have to look at the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And we start to ask some questions. What actually happened there? What was the intent? Who is it for? We could probably break down our questions into these two. Who did Jesus die for? That would be one question we need to answer biblically. And what we mean by that little word for is important. Little words have meaning, just like big words. What we mean when we say, who did Jesus die for, is what is the intent of the atonement? What was Jesus trying to do when he died on the cross? And then what is the extent of the atonement? What sins did Jesus pay for? That's what we mean when we say, who did Jesus die for? And then secondly, and similarly, we can also ask this. What did Jesus' death actually accomplish? Was it an effective atonement? Was real payment made at the cross? Was there an actual transaction that took place? Or was this simply a potential atonement? Sort of a blank check that Jesus filled out and handed out to whoever would like to sign their name on. So so these are key questions we have to ask when we study the doctrine of the atonement. Who did Jesus die for? And what did Jesus' death accomplish? Basically, we're asking, is this an unlimited, indefinite atonement? Is it open-ended? There are some scriptures that may seem to say that. There are some texts that speak of the atonement as being broad and undefined and even potentially as being universal. For instance, first, or John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is broad, even universal. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. This is broad and, and wide-reaching and inclusive. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, so when we start studying the atonement, there's some verses that make it seem, well, this is a universal, unlimited, far-reaching atonement. But then there's other texts, on the other hand, that seem to speak of the atonement as being personal, not general, and speak of the atoning work of Christ as being particular, not indefinite. John eleven fifty one. Um, Caiaphas is talking about how Jesus would die for the nation, and he's speaking of things. It's ironic. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's thinking he's just dealing with a political insurrection, but his words carry theological weight. And John comments that he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but notice this, that Jesus died 
to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This seems to speak of the death of Christ as being specifically for a number of people. We would understand that to be the elect, those whom God has chosen for salvation. In John chapter 10, verse 11, likewise, Jesus speaks of his role as the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not for the sheep and the goats, but specifically for the sheep. This is personal. It is particular. Galatians 2.20 Paul speaks about this in a very personal sense. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So which is it? Is it an unlimited universal or is it a particular, specific, personal atoning work? We really have three options in answering uh, that question. When we wonder, did Jesus die For those who'd be saved, or did he die in some sense for every person individually who ever lived? So again, there's three options. There's sort of three possible answers. One is a universal atonement. And there are some who believe this. This is not orthodox. This is not what scripture teaches. But some will look at those broad universal texts and say that everyone will be saved. No one will experience judgment in hell. And everyone will go to heaven. That is a universal atonement. And whether you are Arminian or a Calvinist, both groups would reject this view. We would say, no, this is in clear conflict with what Scripture plainly teaches in many, many places, that there is judgment and not all will be saved and that the path is narrow that leads to salvation, the path is broad that leads to destruction. We could go on and on and on. So we know that universal atonement can't be an option. So that's not a biblical view. So that leaves us with two other options, and the first would be an unlimited atonement. An unlimited atonement would mean that Christ died for the sins of every person who ever lived. And it is simply up to sinners to determine by their free choice whether this atonement is effective. So this would be a potential atonement and an unlimited atonement. And then the alternate view to this would be a limited atonement, speaking that Christ died specifically for the sins of the elect. He died specifically for those who would one day believe. And while his atoning work is sufficient to save all, there is unlimited power in the blood of Christ. It effectively saves those who believe. So this is describing not just a potential atonement, but an actual atonement. So there are many, including myself, who don't prefer this term limited atonement, although I do believe in this view. And the reason I don't like the idea of a limited atonement is because of the label. And to be honest, it just comes across as negative and restrictive and diminishing. Um, And and words matter. Labels do matter. I think all of us in here would agree, for instance, when we talk about something like abortion, Um, that there is a right view and a wrong view on that. And we would agree that human beings are made in the image of God and that all life has value, and that it is wrong to take the life of an innocent child. We would call ourselves pro-life. There are many who would call us anti-choice. Well, which is it? Well, yes, but words matter, don't they? It it has a a connotation and an inference that's negative when you call our view anti-choice choice. No, we are pro-life, and the labels do matter. The words matter. So many, including myself, would prefer a different term for this view of the atonement. I like the the term particular redemption or definite atonement, either one, because both terms emphasize the effective 
and personal nature of Christ's atoning work. So I, I would subscribe to this view of a limited atonement, but if you talk to me, I'll call it particular redemption or definite atonement. But at the end of the day, what matters is not just the labels. What matters is what does the Bible teach? And we need to answer this question biblically. Did Christ die for his chosen bride specifically? Did he lay down his life for the sheep? Or did he die for all and for the world? And and what do those words mean? So rather than debate the labels, I want to jump into Scripture and see what we find there. And what we find is that the work of the cross is, first of all, it's two things. It's powerful and personal. The work of Christ on the cross accomplishes something. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're familiar with this, but I want you to think carefully about it. Jesus didn't just come to make salvation possible. He came to save. There is a concrete, intentional purpose in the cross. And it is not dependent on humans, on our will, on our choices. It's dependent on the one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his perfect work. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. He came to save. Consider what the death of Jesus actually does, that there is power in the cross. First of all, the death of Jesus reconciles us to God. Notice that Scripture never talks about the cross as potential salvation. It speaks of the cross as doing something. Romans 5.10 says, We were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. We were reconciled. Something happened when Jesus died. Colossians 1.21 and 22. We find that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We who are now made holy and blameless. So the death of Jesus is doing something. It's accomplishing something. It is effective. It not only reconciles us, it also redeems us from the curse. Galatians 3 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So as Jesus hangs on the tree, he redeems us. He's doing something. He's accomplishing something. It is effective Hebrews 9.12 says he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus secures something when he sheds his blood. He's doing something. We see this as well in Acts 20. Verse 28, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders and says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, notice this, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus obtains the church, redeeming, ransoming the church with his blood. It does something when he dies. Revelation 5.9 worships Christ and says, by his blood he ransomed people. He didn't just make them ransomable. He ransomed them. Hebrews 9.15 speaks of those who were called. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called, this is referring to God's sovereign calling, based on his predestination of sinners for salvation, so that those called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them. The them refers to the called. This death redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The death of Jesus also propitiates the wrath of God. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The death of Jesus not only propitiates the wrath of God, it also purifies us from sin. We see that in Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work was done. He had accomplished something. So salvation is accomplished at the cross. Jesus' death does not make us savable. It saves us. His blood does not make us redeemable. It redeems us. The cross does not make us somehow reconcilable. It reconciles us. The Bible constantly describes the atonement as effective. Something real was accomplished at the cross. A real transaction was made. A real sacrifice was offered that satisfied the wrath of God against real sin by specific people. And this, friends, is why Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. It's finished because the payment had been made in full. So when we study the atonement, we have to ask the question, how does scripture speak about the nature of the atonement? Well, scripture describes the cross and the atonement as being powerful and purposeful. It's doing something and it is effective. But scripture also describes the atonement and the work of Jesus on the cross as being personal in nature, not just broad and undefined and generic, but being personal. Notice Matthew 1, 21. Familiar Christmas text. The angel speaks to Joseph and says that his wife Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The atoning work of Jesus is not just a generic love, it is not just indiscriminate atonement, it is personal in nature. We see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. There's a personal love here. And he sent his son for this reason, for this purpose, to be the propitiation for our sins. So the question is, who is the we? Who is the us? Who is the our? Well, verse 11 makes it clear. It's believers. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The context here for we, us, and our, those for whom the son was sent to propitiate sins, It refers specifically to believers. It's personal. It is specific. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins, not just sin in general, but our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the atoning work of Christ is not just generic love. It's not indiscriminate. It is personal in nature. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us. I think we see it very clearly in Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is different than the love of a husband who says, I love women. This is the faithful, personal, relational love of a husband who says, I love my wife. I love my bride. I know her face. I know her name. And I will give up everything for her. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he continues, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus indicates here he lays his down life for the sheep. And not just the sheep who were there on that day. He says there's other sheep mixed up out there in the world, and I'm calling them to myself. And I'm laying down my life for those sheep as well, so that they will be part of my flock. So the atonement is personal in nature. We can continue on. We already read from John 11. I won't recover that uh, once again. But again, Jesus is dying to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, The Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. So when we survey what Scripture says about the atonement, how does Scripture describe the nature of the atonement? Well, we can sort of make these few conclusions. That Scripture describes the atonement as actually accomplishing salvation. So it is effective in its nature. It also describes the atonement as being personal and specific, not simply a generic indiscriminate thing. Therefore, we believe that that the atonement is limited or particular or definite in its extent. That Jesus dies specifically and effectively for the sin of the elect, for his children, for the sheep, for his bride, for his people. So the question comes up, so if this is true, if Jesus died for believers, for those who would one day place their faith in him, and did not die in the same way for those who would be eternally lost, does this somehow minimize and diminish Christ's work? And to that we would say no. No, and here's two important words we we should always associate with this idea of a definite atonement. That the work of Jesus is sufficient for all. There is no shortness to his right hand, as as scripture would say. There is no limit to his power to save. The death of Jesus is sufficient for all, but it is efficient. It is effective only for those who believe. So this doctrine of a definite atonement is not meant to limit the power of the cross. Rather, it narrows the purpose of the cross. You see, everyone limits the atonement somehow. And even if I'm not able to fully persuade you this morning of this view of a definite atonement, we all do believe in a limited atonement somehow. It will either be limited by God, by his intention, his purpose, what it is that he is meaning to accomplish, and what it is that he does through the cross, or it will be limited by man. It will will be limited by man's free will and man's willingness to place his faith in Christ. So everyone believes in a limited atonement, Unless you're a universalist, unless you believe everyone goes to heaven in the end, which is not a biblical view. Lorraine Bettner, one theologian, once wrote years ago that Calvinism, this sort of reformed tulip version of this understanding of of the gospel, Calvinism presents the atonement as a narrow bridge that reaches all the way across the stream. Arminianism presents the atonement An atonement that is wide, a wide bridge, but it only reaches halfway. So the question is, which one are we going to believe? Which is the way that scripture presents it? And you can say it is narrow and limiting to say that, that the bridge is narrow. But it's also limiting to Christ's work on the cross to say it only stretches halfway across. And it's up to us to make the atonement effective. Jesus says, it is finished, provided some people eventually believe in me. So these are the two options, but I want to make sure that we don't see this view as limiting or diminishing Christ's work. 
Now you might say, so I, I'm not convinced. I think the atonement is unlimited. I think it's indefinite. Well, here's some consequences of that view. Consider the alternative. If Christ died for all, like every individual specific person in the same way, if there is an unlimited atonement, then first of all, some of Christ's atoning work is wasted. Consider this. Think about this. Think about the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. Think about payment that was made. Some of that is wasted. And it makes Jesus' suffering in vain. That some of what he went through, some of what he did on the cross, simply slipped through the cracks and was eternally not effective. This view says that the death of Jesus, his suffering, it only purchases the opportunity for atonement. It only makes salvation possible rather than accomplishing salvation. So that would make Christ's atoning work inefficient. Secondly, uh, you could say, no, I don't think that some of it was wasted. I think he really did pay for those sins. Well, if that's the case, then God is unjustly punishing some sins twice over. If Jesus atoned for and paid for effectively the sins of unbelievers who never believe, then it means that they suffer in hell eternally for sins that have already been punished at the cross. That God is an unjust judge who double charges. And this impugns his justice. God is perfectly just. And when atonement is made, when, when he, his wrath is propitiated, God doesn't come back later and change his mind and punish those sins again a second time. Third, if you take this view of the atonement, it makes Christ's love generic, not personal. That he loves people in general, but it's a faceless, nameless humanity that Jesus loves. It's not individual specific sinners that Christ has in mind as he carries his cross to the hill. And as he, as he receives the nails in his hands and feet, and as he fights for breath and lays down his life, on the cross. It makes it a generic love. And then finally, it gives man power over the effectiveness of Christ's work. It says that he will save his people from their sins if they let him. And so for me, I am convinced of this definite, effective, personal nature of the atonement that is specifically for the elect, because I, I see these other reasons as not being something that fits with scripture. Now, many of you are thinking, okay, that makes sense logically, I guess, but what about all those verses that say Jesus died for all or that Christ um, has laid down his life for the sins of the world or, or such texts? And perhaps 1 John 2 2 would be one that you're thinking about, saying he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's really two groups of verses like this. There's some that say Jesus died for all. Others say that he died for the world. And we can't look at every verse, but I'd like to give you a few examples. This one in 1 John and then a second one here in a moment. So we have to ask the question, well, let's look at these words. He made propitiation or he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, first, if we're going to be literal with this verse, does this mean universal salvation? I think we can all agree, based on countless other verses that clearly teach not all are saved, we have to agree that this doesn't mean universal salvation. So all of us are agreeing that this word world must be restricted in some sense. Either propitiation is restricted or world is restricted, but there's some sort of limitation to the meaning of this verse. 
And so I think it's right for us to limit the meaning of world based on other passages. This cannot mean universal salvation. I think it's meant rather to expand the scope of salvation beyond Israel. Because we have to say, okay, why would John say that he made propitiation for the sins of the whole world? What point is he trying to make? If he's not saying that Jesus died for every person individually, then what does he mean? Well, I think John is seeking to correct the false idea that Christ came to save the Jews, but not the Gentiles. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know this is a problem that has to be dealt with in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and all these passages where they had to have it pounded into their heads that salvation is not just for Israel. It's for Jews and Greeks. It's for slave and free. It's for male and female, that it is expansive in that sense. It's not limited to a certain type of person. So if we read it this way, these verses don't mean that he died for all without distinction, but rather Christ died for all without exception. I'll say that again, because these are two, again, two very precise words we always need to connect to this idea of atonement. That Christ died for all without distinction, but he did not die for all, meaning all without exception, like every individual person. But it means that all kinds of people will be there on the last day. We see this glorious picture in Revelation that people from every tribe and tongue and kingdom and nation are there worshiping the Lamb who was slain. It's the world. It's not just Israel. So Christ died for all men without distinction, but not all men without exception. I think that is a proper, valid way to understand verses that talk about Jesus dying for the world. Because we're all going to limit that in some way, and I think that's the best way to understand it. What about a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.14? It says, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So once again, the all here in this verse cannot mean all men without exception, because then everyone would have a share in Christ's death and its benefits. Then we would be universalists. We would believe everyone goes to heaven, because these all, in verse 14, are those who live in verse 15. Spiritual life, those who are destined to experience a resurrection. So the all that is listed here in this verse uh, must be limited in some sense. Contextually, the all in this passage is defined as those who live. So all who live are those for whom Christ died. So this emphasis here, again, underscores the fact that all believers, without exception, owe their life to Christ. There's no one who lives. There's no one who is saved apart from the death of Christ. And therefore, there's none who live, there's none who are saved who do not owe Christ everything. Sorry, I think my phone's going off in the front row. That's my fault this time. It's always funny when somebody's phone goes off in church. Sometimes it's the pastor's phone. So, do all scriptures refer to the atonement as all and world? Because you might say, okay, J.D., there's all these verses that say that Jesus died for the world, that God loves the world, that Christ died for the sins of the world. Are you just going to explain that away every single time? Well, here's the thing. There's other verses that don't say world. There's other verses that don't say all. Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So scripture doesn't always use um, all-inclusive language. 
Sometimes it uses language that seems to indicate that this is an amazing work that's saving many, but many doesn't mean every. Many doesn't mean every. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There seems to be a limitation here that is specific as far as the people for whom Christ dies. Isaiah 53, 11, <clears throat> out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So scripture doesn't always use the words all or world to describe the intent and the extent of the atonement. So we have these two sets of verses. Some say many, some say all. Which is it? Well, we have two options. Either the verses that say many um, are descriptive of all in the world, that many is just a synonym for all, that is describing that. That would be the view of an unlimited atonement. Or we can see that all in the world is descriptive of the many for whom Christ died. And this would be a definite atonement. So this is the biblical way to sort through these passages. You have to see how all of these verses fit together. Again, we want to base our theology not just based on history or philosophy or logic. We want to base our theology on scripture. We want our doctrine to be biblical. And because we have these two different types of texts, we have to see how do they shine light on each other. And I believe that the words like all and words like the world are descriptive of the nature of the many for whom Christ died, that it's people from every tribe and tongue, every gender, every nation, every social status, every age. And this is the amazing work that Christ has done, that he came specifically for these people to lay down his life for them and to effectively atone for their sins, not just making salvation possible, but accomplishing salvation at the cross. A few words of clarification. Questions that will arise as we, as we look at this effective personal work of atonement. Are all people saved without believing? Uh, or, or rather, are people saved without believing? Does the fact that a, atonement was made at the cross mean that it doesn't matter if we share the gospel? It doesn't matter if people repent of sin and trust in Jesus? Does it mean that, that all of the elect are already saved? No, it doesn't mean that. We need to keep in mind the history of salvation. Salvation is planned in eternity past by the Father. That's the doctrine of election that we talked about a few weeks ago. That's, Stephen illustrated it as, as a carpenter who makes marks on a piece of wood that he plans later to make cuts at those precise points. That is election, the sovereign planning of salvation in eternity past. Salvation is then later accomplished at the cross by the Son. This is atonement where Jesus effectively pays for sins in his work on the cross. And the purposes of election, salvation, cannot come to pass unless Jesus dies. It's necessary. But that doesn't mean everything's done. Salvation must later then be applied. And this happens at conversion and is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is regeneration. This is what happens when a sinner feels conviction of sin, recognizes their need, places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and is made alive. At that moment, the atoning work of Christ, that effective payment, is applied to them. And they are made new. So all of these steps are necessary. And none of these steps on their own constitute the whole. We have to understand what God is doing through history to bring about the salvation of his people. 
Now, again, <clears throat> I, I'm not under any delusions to think I can fully persuade you in 40 minutes of teaching here. So I just want to throw out, throw out a few points of agreement. Whether you hold a view of the atonement that is indefinite and unlimited, um, that it's potential atonement, or whether you hold, like I do, this definite atonement, this particular redemption that Christ effectively accomplished something on the cross for the elect. In either case, we both agree on several points. We all believe that Jesus makes atonement, don't we? We all believe that Jesus is the only way and that his work on the cross is enough. We don't need to add anything to his atoning sacrifice. So glory be to Christ. No matter whether you take one view or the other, Christ deserves all the glory for his atoning work on the cross. And in eternity, we're told that we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, for by his blood he purchased the people. We're going to sing about the atonement forever, which is going to be awesome. I think we all have to agree and believe that whatever our understanding of the atonement, not all will be saved. In John chapter 3, we're told that whoever does not believe is condemned because they've not believed in the only Son of God, the one who died on the cross so that whoever believes will not perish. So we have to agree not all will be saved. We're not universalists, no matter which side we fall on when it comes to this idea of the atonement. And finally, we all believe, both sides, both those who hold to a limited atonement and those who hold to an unlimited atonement, both sides fully agree that the gospel can be freely offered to all and that whoever believes will be saved. We all agree with that. Again, in terms of preaching the atonement, Acts 17.30 says that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel call in terms of that command to repent and believe, it goes out to all. Luke 24, 46 and 47 tells us that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The gospel must be proclaimed to all, whether you believe in a limited or unlimited atonement. Revelation twenty two seventeen holds out this invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So the gospel is freely offered to all. Any who desire to come can. Any who believe will be saved. Now, understanding the doctrines of grace, we know that the only ones who desire to come the only ones who will choose to believe are those whom God has chosen and whom his spirit enables to do so. So God's sovereignty is at work underneath all of this. But there is never a case where someone comes and wants to be saved and, and can't be. I think sometimes we have this image of maybe Noah on the ark and there's all these people banging on the door saying, please let us in and says, sorry, you can't. The gospel call doesn't work that way. The only ones who want to believe, the only ones who desire salvation, the only ones who are seeking Christ are those who are already experiencing that grace. And Stephen's going to talk about this next week, irresistible grace. Actually, two weeks maybe. I think it's two weeks. I get my schedule wrong. And then finally, John 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's election right there. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone who comes receives. All who believe will be saved. And this message of salvation must be preached to all. <clears throat> so the limited <clears throat> nature of the atonement does not mean that we cannot rightly preach the gospel 
to every living creature. We are commanded to do so. So a few resources for further study. These are some uh, books in addition to the, the scripture passages mentioned that sort of walk through some of the exegesis of these passages. Uh, we've been helped by Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, John Piper's little book called Five Points. It's a very short, very clear book. Um, Steele, Thomas, and Quinn have partnered together. Uh, this is the second edition, I believe, of the Five Points of Calvinism. This little book has just a ton of Bible verses. It's basically a few short paragraphs of, of, of explanation and then just a dump truck load full of biblical texts. It's a great little book. And then uh, a specific book on the atonement would be a classic by John Murray, written back in the 50s, I believe. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And this is a wonderful uh, book that I would recommend to you all warmly. And, and I'll just leave you all with this. If you study this doctrine more deeply, um, I hope you experience something that I experienced this week. And that is to come to appreciate the love of God in the atonement. If you think of this as narrow and restrictive, you're missing it. Really to consider that Christ died, if you're a believer, for you, for your sins, because he loved you, and he was accomplishing something effectively for you. This is the love of God that's displayed in the cross. So I hope that you'll think about this doctrine as a doctrine of, of love, that it is the expression of love for sinners. I know this raises some questions. We'll have hopefully some opportunities in our Q&A um, um, to address these questions. If you want to do us a favor, email us some of those questions. We'll have more time to think and prepare, uh, or you can just come and put us on the spot and expect us to answer off the top of our head, I guess, in our Q&A. Uh, but thanks for coming this morning. I hope this has been helpful. We'll see you guys back here in about 18 minutes as we begin our worship service this morning.